Hi there, and welcome to Iron and Rust. I'm your host, Trevor Downey, and together we're going to explore the brief but fascinating history of battleships and the equally interesting battle cruisers. A lot of folks are familiar with the all big gun ships of Japan, Germany, and the United States that were made famous during World War II, and almost certainly everyone has heard of the epic battles like Midway and Pearl Harbor. But battleships were around for several decades before that decisive conflict, and they suffered a brief but vibrant history that culminated in being made obsolete by the aircraft carrier, the modern-day capital ships of navies around the world. Before we really dive in, let's get a few housekeeping things out of the way. First, and most importantly, is that this show subscribes to the Carlin caveat. I am not a historian, but merely a fan of history, so I will try to couch statements that are entirely my own with that. Secondly, please don't hesitate to give us a follow on Twitter at Iron and Rust. Just match with the logo and you're all set. DMs are open and I'd love to hear your feedback. Constructive criticism is always welcome. And finally, I will try to keep the podcast clean. The occasional damn or hell may sneak out. I'm only human. And if I'm quoting from a primary source and it contains any profanity, I will give you a heads up. I know a lot of us out there have little ones, and we don't need them running off to school with a fun new word they learned on Mom and Dad's podcast. With all that out of the way, let's begin the show. Thanks for joining me, and let's go see what we can learn. Let's talk about terminology for a moment. Long tons? Yards? Meters? Inches? Pick a measurement system, I hear you shouting into the void. Well, I'm going to try. Or rather, my sources are going to try. For consistency's sake, we'll be using English or long tons when referring to displacement and millimeters for weapons caliber. Yards and feet will most likely be used interchangeably throughout the program. However, I'll do my best to provide both. For brief conversions, though, let's just remember that an inch is about 25 millimeters and one foot is about 30 centimeters. A yard is around nine-tenths of a meter, so, so keep that in mind. Most firing ranges will be in yards, and then eventually we're going to graduate to miles. Feet and meters will be used uh, interchangeably to describe the length of a ship, but hopefully this way, when there's a thousand numbers being bandied about, you can somewhat sort through the nonsense. Also worth noting is displacement. Typically used to quickly describe a ship size, displacement is measured in tons, and we still use it today to describe a ship size. Displacement, in naval terms, is how much water the space a ship is occupying should be filled with. For example, a smaller ship, such as a destroyer or torpedo boat, may displace only a few thousand tons of water, whereas larger ships, like a battleship, a heavy cruiser, or even aircraft carriers, will displace tens of thousands of tons. A famous example would be Yamato, the Imperial Japanese Navy, the largest battleship ever built by any navy. She displaced around 70,000 tons fully loaded, whereas HMS Dreadnought, the first Dreadnought, and one of the earliest all-big gun ships, displaced around 20,000 tons. Now that that's done, let's travel back in time a little bit. Let me check my watch here. 1805, Battle of Trafalgar. Oh, Admiral Nelson's finest and final hour. Unfortunately, we're going to skip over the good Admiral, which is a shame because he definitely deserves his own episode, but we went too far back. Let's jump ahead to 1816. That's a little better, but not quite. Anyway, while we're here, let's check in on naval combat real quickly. HMS Impregnable, a standard British second-rate of the line ship, sails near Algier. 
a three-deck, 98-gun ship quite capable in her own time. She sails near Algiers to take part in a famous bombardment campaign led by Dutch Admiral Edward Biello and commanded by British Admiral David Milne, who is an interesting character in his own right. During the raid, Impregnable becomes separated from her line and is considered to be a high-priority target by the shore batteries at Algier, who promptly pummel Impregnable for a majority of the day landing 233 successful hits of large shells, including over a dozen that hit the main mast. Now, I have seen some sources say 260-plus hits, but I'm going to use the slightly lower number of 233 from Fighting Techniques of Naval Warfare by Thomas Dunn Books. Uh, this volume has several authors, and I'm unsure who was in charge of the 19th century portion, and I would hate to miscredit, but that is still a lot of hits on a ship. With 50 fatalities and approximately 150 wounded, the ship limps back to Gibraltar for repairs and continued to serve the Royal Navy for decades to come. So keeping that in mind, let's put a pin in that for a second, hop back in our time machine, and we'll come back to this. Next stop, 1853. Here we have Imperial Russian Admiral Paul Nagamov decimating Turkish Vice Admiral Osman Pasha's fleet of about 10 or so ships in just a few hours with three line of battleships. So what happened? How did a ship just a few decades earlier survive a day-long bombardment from shore batteries firing much larger rounds when a much smaller fleet managed to wipe the floor with their opponent? Now, we could spend all day breaking down the Battle of Sinop, as it is known, and we could discuss the quite capable Admiral Nakimov, who has a medal named after him in the modern Russian Federation. We could talk about the glaring technological gap between the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire, but we're going to pull from this the most important piece of the puzzle so we can hop back in the time machine and see some more sights. The big key for Nakimov's swift victory is the explosive shell. Whereas HMS Impregnable suffered hundreds upon hundreds of cannonballs and non-explosive proto-shells, which just passed through a ship and maybe a sailor on its way out, a competent ship's company could just plug the small hole and probably move on with their day, maintaining effectiveness. An explosive shell, on the other hand, well, it explodes. And with that explosion comes the obvious damage to the ship, but that damage generates shrapnel and debris that then flies around, damaging other parts of the ship and killing, wounding, and maiming the sailors who are trying to operate the ship. And the damage caused by the explosion is not just a simple plug-to-fix kind of a problem. Explosive shells left massive, ragged holes in the hull, exposing the crew, flooding the ship with water. Vice Admiral Pasha could have been the Horatio Nelson of his day. He wasn't, but he could have been. And it wouldn't have mattered because the simple rock-paper-scissors equation of wooden ships versus explosive shells was decided before he even had his boots on. This was an alarming change of pace for naval technology, considering that for the hundred or so years prior to this battle, naval combat and naval warfare technology remained largely unchanged. Sure, there was an innovation here or there, but that majority of that was in shipbuilding, and the few naval warfare adjustments were made related to training or drilling, if you want to think of it that way. Navies of the 18th and early 19th century drilled for rate of fire and accuracy by volume, same as the land armies of their day did. Admirals and captains knew that in order to destroy or disable an enemy ship, they had to close the gap, so to speak, and get in cannon range, and then fire as many rounds as possible in the short amount of time they had that the broadside of the enemy ships vis was visible and in range. 
the broadside, if you don't know, is that broadest side of a ship. Typically, uh, there's a couple examples of some trend breakers when referring to a broadside being fired, but for the most part, it means a ship is promoting its widest side and firing the maximum amount of guns it has on board. Uh, in order to fire, a ship had to align its broadside with the broadside of its enemy, and they exchanged fire with each other for a few moments as the ships passed. <clears throat> sorry, as they passed each other, or if they sailed parallel to each other for an extended period of time. Then they continued to fire upon each other until one ship breaks off the engagement, or the next ship in the line comes along. Essentially, the goal was to kill or maim the other ship's crew, or create a scenario such as a fire where the ship had to fall out of the line and could no longer operate effectively. Ships rarely were sunk outright just by cannon fire due to the fact that they could only hit what was above the waterline, given the technology at the time. Sure, a ship would take on some water during battle as holes appeared and damage accrued, but normally it was fire, or the inability of the crew due to casualties to battle the flooding and damage. But Nakimov managed to cruise around his prey, setting them ablaze, and sowing chaos in that foggy harbor that Pasha had found himself in. Not only was he able to sow maximum chaos and set wooden ships on fire, but the few Turkish ships who managed to return fire simply couldn't match the damage that the Russians were dishing out. Now this was an eye-opening event for the navies of the world, and they knew something had to change, and that the death of wooden ships was inevitable. This wasn't an entirely sudden development. Naval tacticians had been theorizing for years prior to sign-up, but it had been mostly conjecture. Over the next 10 to 15 years, many experiments were done by some of the greatest minds of the time. The French Navy, however, always looking to technology to give them some sort of edge over the massive British Navy, were the first to armor a true ship of the line. Enter Glory. Launched in 1859 and classified as an armored frigate, she was the first ocean-going ironclad ship of battle, which was more and more frequently being shortened to battleship in the comings and goings of naval jargon. 256 feet long, 55 feet wide, and displacing 5,500 tons, she was capable at the time of 13 knots. Quite the ship, armed with 36 rifled guns aligned in a single firing line, 18 port and 18 starboard, first traditional muzzle loaders, and then updated to breech loaders sometime in the 1860s, she packed quite the punch. The biggest innovation of Glory, however, was the 11 centimeter thick wrought iron band running the length of the ship in down below the waterline. This gave Glory a higher level of survivability than any ship previous and practically made her invincible against a traditional wooden ship of the line. However, this did bring drawbacks to Glory as well. Due to the additional weight, she was very difficult to control and rolled quite a bit on the open ocean. Obviously, in a time before computer-controlled firing systems, this made it impractical for human gunners to accurately fire. To make matters worse for those unfortunate gunners, the lower location of the firing line and the gun ports meant that the more water than usual spilled in through the gun ports. The British, not ones to let the French take the lead in naval affairs, almost immediately launched HMS Warrior the following year, displacing 9,200 tons and capable of 14 knots, take that France, taking France's construction of glory as a potential tipping of power in regards to wooden hulled ships. Warrior was built with an iron hull and armor plating, which gave the ship an advantage in speed and protection, being lighter 
than a wooden hull, but also more resilient. HMS Warrior was a bit more seaworthy than her French counterpart. The British also had the opportunity, and the spies, to learn from some of France's errors in the construction of Glory and her sisters. Now, excitingly, HMS Warrior has been preserved and exists as a museum ship maintained by the National Museum of the Royal Navy in Portsmouth, England. Now, she sits in the same harbor as our friend Nelson's famous flagship HMS Victory. Warrior has been restored to her mid-1860s condition, and you can tour her, and you can even get married on board if you chose to. Even still, the not-quite-an-arms-race-arms-race escalated further when late in 1861, France launches two new ironclads, Magenta and Solferino, which they built with spur-styled rams on the bow, in addition to the armor plating and the rifled guns. While the thought of rams being added to modern warships might seem ridiculous to you and me, at the time there was a serious discussion given to the idea that with all this armor plating, the ships would be even harder to sink than ever, and that getting in close and ramming your opponent was a sound theory. At the time, it was proposed that ships battling in a line, the realization that the line of battle wasn't, was dead hasn't quite fully been realized at this point, would eventually devolve into a vicious melee, and that ramming would be the great equalizer in that close quarters environment. But seeing as we are in 1861, this is a perfect place. Well, perfect for us anyway. In the United States, the Civil War is brewing, so they might have some notes on perfect or not. But we're just here for the ships real quick before we hop back into our time machine. When the nation split, the young U.S. Navy went to the Union, and the Confederacy only had a few ships left. And they set about converting civilian ships to military purpose with relatively limited effect. There is one standout, however, in this mad scientist phase for the Confederate Navy, CSS Manassas. Essentially a tugboat that they slammed a bunch of armor plate on turning it into a giant ram. But we'll talk about that, the river ironclads, and the rest of the American Civil War's naval lesson on the next episode. A lot of foreign powers were watching the American Civil War for a variety of reasons, but navies were watching closely as the Union and the Confederacy raced to build a ship that suited their needs, and in doing so they set off a chain of events in naval warfare that wouldn't really come to a halt until aircraft carriers achieved their apex during World War II. Thank you so much for joining me on this. Admittedly, this is my first attempt to do any sort of a podcast, and I've tried about three or four different ways to make it happen. Uh, talking with people, friends, co-workers, that kind of a thing, I went back and forth on what to focus on and what to kind of glaze over. Uh, basically, I'm trying to hurry up and get to the fun part, the pre-World War I dreadnoughts, the big battleships, all of that stuff. But I feel like the importance of them and why they were so critical to navies of their time would be lost if I didn't talk about the buildup in the arms races, essentially, that led to their construction. There are a lot of people that contribute the race for battleships and dreadnoughts to being one of the leading causes of World War One. I'm not really qualified to say whether it is or not, but I think that talking about the buildup to that buildup is really essential. And we would be doing a disservice to all of the people 
the ship designers, the sailors, and the ships themselves if we didn't talk about that little bit of history before we got there. Hopefully you enjoyed the format I did choose. Hopefully it doesn't sound really boring and, and monotone, but please don't hesitate to hit me up on Twitter and drop me a line. I'd love to hear what you thought. Uh, there's one more segment here before the final end of the episode. Every episode is going to conclude with a ship of the episode where I'm going to kind of go in depth about a ship in particular and just like any weird facts about it or stuff like that. Uh, and they'll have one of those at the end of every episode. So hopefully you enjoyed it and uh, hopefully you'll stick around for the next one. Thanks. I felt bad giving our good friend Admiral Nelson kind of the short end of the stick when we were doing the regular episode. So I thought for the first ship of the episode, I would do HMS Victory. Um, she's old and she's famous, probably one of the most famous ships in the world, especially if you have even a passing interest in naval history. Uh, she was commissioned 244 years ago in 1758. Now she didn't launch until 1765, but shipbuilding took a good long while back then, so we'll cut them some slack. 104 guns. She's 186 feet long, or 57 meters if you need that. On the gun deck, 227 feet long overall, or 69 meters if you need that. About 50 feet wide. She had over six and a half thousand square yards of sail, which is a lot. That allowed her to achieve about 11 knots, and that's pretty standard for a three-decked ship of the line back in the day. Um, she took place at a lot of great battles, like the Battle of Trafalgar, the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, the First and Second Battle of Ushant, and she was also at several battles near Gibraltar. It took 150 workmen to construct her frame, and over 6,000 trees were used in the construction. About 90% of them were oak, and the rest were elm, pine, and fir. And the wood of the hull was held in place by six-foot copper bolts. Those massive, you know, bolts they just ran through. And then I believe they used wooden, uh, not wooden nails, but like tree nails, uh, specifically made to work through good uh, good timber like that for anything smaller. Now, typically back in that time, wooden ships were built and then they were seasoned, left out kind of on a dry dock uh, to give the wood time to age and season. But due to the end of, <clears throat> ooh, sorry, due to the end of the Seven Years' War, things kind of got left behind and Victory ended up sitting for three years in a dry dock which a lot of people have attributed to her longevity. I mean, she has essentially the same haul that she had then, and it's still, you know, seaworthy. First-rate ship of the line, and that's something we don't really talk about in the regular podcast, the ratings, but essentially uh, the, the line of battle where the ships line up to, to pummel each other with their cannons, a first-rate is going to be the most powerful, the best crew, and usually have an admiral on board. A second-rate ship is going to probably have a pretty good crew. Not as many guns. Maybe a rear admiral or something. Third-rate, fourth-rate. I believe it goes all the way down to sixth-rate, but that's where you get into frigates and smaller ships like that. 
that is a classification system that we're not really going to encounter uh, once all big gunships appear. But where we left off in the 1860s, they were still considering those ships to be ships of the line. Now, uh, HMS Victory is in Portsmouth, like we talked about, and you can tour her and you can look at her. There's recreations of all of the guns. Well, not all of them. There's, you know, there's demonstrations there. Um, It's really quite interesting to me that so many ships that like ones we're going to talk about in the near future were built for just a brief moment and then scrapped. And obviously wood, well, timber and iron and steel, there's a limited amount that you can get to. And building these ships is horribly, horribly expensive for certain nations. This is why, um, you know, the nations that explored the most, like England, like France, and even the Dutch to some extent, or Portugal, they had great, great reserves of wealth that they could draw on to build these massive ships. I'm trying to see if I can find the cost here. Okay, so it looks like in 1765, it cost 63,000 pounds, British pounds, to build the ship. Now, that's the equivalent of 9 million pounds today. 9 million pounds is a lot of money. And not even to think how much that must have been for the British government in the 18th century. These ships are expensive and they take forever to build. But that's one of the heartbreaking things. Ships like HMS Dreadnought and her sister and and HMS Warrior or Glory, those ships were scrapped relatively quickly and they didn't have the longevity of a ship like Victory. And that's, I think that's kind of sad because we're missing a lot of history about this kind of stuff because the wood needed to be reclaimed to save money. Uh, You know, militaries will always claim that they never have enough money. And I just think that we throw away some of history when that happens and that's devastating. Fortunately, we have lots of photographs of some of the ships of the late 19th, early 20th century that we're going to talk about and drawings and paintings and things, but those aren't quite the same. But I just think for a first ship of the episode, HMS Victory is pretty, I think she's important, mostly because of the Battle of Trafalgar, but also to showcase that the great cost even 240 years ago to build a massive ship a flagship, a capital ship, even though that term wasn't used at the time. And it's just very interesting to me that a ship served actively for so long when we start getting into the late 19th century and early 20th century, where a ship is lucky to see 10 or 15 years before she's made obsolete. HMS Victory represents, I guess you could call it the golden age of sail, I think that term is more used for like pirates and stuff, but I think she represents um, a time when things were stagnant technologically wise for warfare. I mean, warfare, naval warfare specifically doesn't change much for about a hundred years after victory's construction. And that's very impressive because that kind of stagnation, it doesn't, you know, HMS Victory looks the same as ships that were built 20 years before her would have been, or 30 years before her, or 20 years after her, and 30 years after her. Whereas now, we talk about a ship like 
the USS Texas, for example, is the last dreadnought left. And we don't really know kind of the incremental upgrades to her. But with HMS Victory, there wasn't incremental upgrades. The most significant upgrade didn't happen until Glory launched, which I think is just impressive and showcases how important these capital ships were and how important the new capital ships are going to be to the people of their time. Because they're looking at a ship like HMS Victory that had been around for hundreds of years and fought in dozens of battles that were important and was commanded by legendary people like Nelson. And they see these as an investment, as something that is a symbol of their power. And what they don't realize is that power is going to wane eventually and ships aren't going to be the masters of the sea like they used to be.